organic free-range HTML. Wild freshwater CSS. And 21-day mature JavaScript. This is not just a podcast. This is Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about ethical design. What does it mean for a design to be ethical? And how do we make improvements in our own projects? We talked to Trina Falber and Martin Michael Fredrickson to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In What to Do If People Hate Your Brand Mascot, Suzanne Skacker looks at what can be done when your audience isn't responding well or outright hates your website mascot. She gives us four options for turning your hated brand mascot into one that people love. Susan Skacker also takes a look at browser testing in How to Make Cross-Browser Testing More Efficient with Lambda Test. From fully automated cross-browser tests to semi-automated tasks, Suzanne explores much more efficient ways to review your website for errors. In How to Use the HTML Drag and Drop API in React, Chidi Orji builds a React Drag and Drop component for file and image uploads. In the process, learn about the HTML Drag and Drop API, as well as how to use the Use Reducer hook for managing state in React functional components. Matrix Kataria looks at some of the newer challenges and opportunities for mobile app makers and designers in the article How to Design Mobile Apps for One-Hand Usage. With 90% of smartphones being sold with screens larger than 5 inches, Matrix looks at how designing apps for one-handed usage can solve some of those challenges. And, in How to Build a Simple Cryptocurrency Blockchain in Node.js, Alfred Kopidi demonstrates how to create a simple cryptocurrency called Smashing Coin using the concepts of JavaScript classes and Node.js. Follow along with this detailed tutorial and you may well find that it's simpler than you think. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She is a human-centered UX strategist, designer, and teacher who works at the intersection between people and business. She's deeply passionate about ethical design and designing for children, and she's also a keynote speaker at conferences and a UX advisor in strategic projects. He is a serial entrepreneur born with a practical appreciation for the crossroads between business and digital development. He's published the books Cross Channel and the CEO's Guide to IT Projects That Cannot Fail. He works as an independent consultant for businesses that need a devil's advocate when trying out new strategies and ideas. Together, they are two of the authors of The Ethical Design Handbook, new from Smashing this month. So, we know they're experts in the topic of ethical design, but did you know they're also an amateur bobsleigh team? My Smashing friends, please welcome Trina Falb and Martin Michael Fredrickson. Hi, Trina. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm Smashing. We're Smashing. I wanted to talk to you today about the subject of ethical design, uh, particularly in the light of the new book you've written alongside Kim Anderson. So, this isn't the first book you've all written together, is it? No, we actually have a book project that, that's uh, about three years old now. We published the book about um, white hat UX uh, use experience. So that was our first book project together. And that went so well that we decided to, to, to do another one. 
So you've written about the topic of ethical design, and this is a term that we're hearing sort of more and more of lately. It's really rising up in the consciousness of designers, it seems to me at least. Why do you think that ethical design is becoming more relevant now? We're seeing a lot of tendencies in the world. We're seeing a lot of um, lawsuits coming up. We're seeing a lot of tendencies where people are starting to speak up against uh, privacy issues and uh, violations. So there are a lot of mega trends that are pointing towards a more um, ethical demand from the consumer side. So that's just one of the things that we're starting to see. It's still pretty early on, still something that is slowly uh, developing, but we we definitely see some some changes in the currents. So so I think that that's the reason why we're starting to discuss ethical design at at a much grander scale. Um, there are also all sorts of uh, issues related to um, to lack of diversity, um, privacy in in the sense of um, um, data being um, hacked and lacked. Um, so we are st- starting to see an increase in general consumer awareness in this area. So so obviously the the industry needs to um, to take that seriously, and that's what they're slowly starting to do. And it's not without reason, I would say. There's a famous photo of Mark Zuckerberg. It's an official Facebook press photo. And you can clearly see in that photo that he has put tape over the camera on his laptop. So he probably know that, that you know, we are being under surveillance from social media and other platforms. He has definitely taken his precautions. And the entire social media industry and the online advertising uh, industry is listening on whatever we do. And the ethical design thinking is simply a pushback towards that. Do you think that the rise in smartphones and the everyday use of digital products has uh, an impact on this as well? Uh, of course it has. And and I, I'm, I'm not thinking that marketing people or business people of today are more evil than 30 years ago. It's just a different time and uh, the tools are different. But the scale of business, the the number of data you can aggregate using a digital technology is just huge. And it just creates a, a new set of problems. So getting back to basics, we talk about ethics. What do we really mean by ethics and and how does that map to what we do in terms of design work? So in the book, we have a couple of definitions that are actually quite important. One is the definition of ethics, but the other one is the definition of ethical design because they're not the same. So the definition of ethics, we've boiled down to something relating to a duty and responsibility to treat others with fairness and respect. There are a couple of terms that are uh, important. So responsibility and fairness and respect. And that's something that we can tie over to our de- to design, to what we do in design. Um, because what we need to understand is that if we are to, to you know, practice ethical design, we need to create um, products and services that grow from this principle from ethics, the principle of fairness and fundamental respect. But we also need to broaden that to understand that our business model and the way that we grow these products and services need to also be rooted in uh, fairness and respect towards 
uh, not just uh, the people that you know are at the the receiving end of our products, the customers, but also to the people that are involved with making these products. And that's really what ethical design is about. To it, it's it's about uh, showing a fundamental um, fairness and, and respect towards everyone involved in a project or in a business or in a product. So sometimes it's helpful to think of what the opposite of uh, of what ethical design is. Um, obviously, there are lots of examples out there of unethical design uh, and things that might perhaps emotionally manipulate users and, and customers. Have you seen lots of examples of that in your research? <laughs> well, for sure, we've seen a lot more examples of unethical design than ethical design. That's actually been a... a a bit of a not of a, not a pain, but a struggle, or as at least a challenge when writing the book and researching for it. We've spent, you know, a year doing this, is to find the good examples. It's a lot. We've seen a lot more bad examples. Uh, Martin, who brought up the uh, Zuckerberg photo with the uh, Mark Zuckerberg's computer uh, webcam being hidden or uh, taped over, is one. There are lots of uh, lots of examples, uh, really big ones. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, where you know, with huge data breaches and or data uh, trade uh, and manipulation of uh, p- potential manipulation of political results. But we're also seeing lots of products that just have all these really manipulative dark patterns in uh, in, um, in their interfaces, like. Uh, you know, Booking.com, Viagogo, which is also, it, it, they um, resell tickets to an increased price. Um, so they have pretty much every manipulative pattern in the book that you can think of from, um, you know, trying to entice us to buy by saying all these other people are buying, you know, we're running out of stock, hurry up, hurry up. So all these different types of manipulative design patterns, we've seen a whole bunch of. But also, you know, in a smaller scale, it's also just sometimes it's because there's an evil business strategy, but most likely it's just because no one really checked the, the, the customer journey. Like I, I, I was at a conference in New York. I booked a, a hotel and ever since they've been sending me emails. And uh, so the unsubscribe function on that email doesn't work. You can send an email to the hotel they don't care or you know the, the the one who received the email it's not her job or whatever and a lot of what we see in dark patterns is just uh, nobody cares or no one has the responsibility to do anything about it and you, you shouldn't confuse that because there's the evil business model and then there's the uh, we didn't know how to do it right and the 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 latter is actually what we try to in the book is to explain how can you do this in a proper manner and of course, you're allowed to have a business model where you make a living out of your app or service or whatever you do. And one example is if you make a fitness app, you can have a paid version of the fitness app. You can have uh, advertising. You can have uh, data brokering as the business model. But you could also just make it free. And then you could have a feature limited free version that you can use to upsell one of the paid versions. And if I, as a customer, want to purchase that app. I may want to uh, keep my data out of the cloud. So there could be an option in that fitness app that I pay a subscription fee and then all my fitness data is on my phone and only on my phone. 
And that would be one very simple example of having an ethical business model where you can actually make money from that fitness app, which is totally okay. So it's a lot more about putting the user first, which is something that we talk about in so many different areas of design, isn't it? We talk about that in, in usability and in accessibility. And really that's, I guess, the, the, the driving force behind good design, isn't it? Is putting the, the user or the person who experiences that design first. I guess we see lots of examples of, I know when I've been uh, maybe, you know, purchasing tickets or, or these sorts of things online and there's sort of banners nagging, say, you know, 50 people are looking at this now um, or sort of countdown timers that try and pressure you into making a quick decision without thinking things through. And those those would be all examples of manipulating users, would you say? Yeah, that's uh, really classical tricks from the from the book, from Manipulative Design 101. Uh, and it's, I mean, Martin and I have just discussed this a lot because there are, you know, there is a, a business case for doing this. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. And we're not really trying to convince the companies that that deeply believe that this is okay, that this is fine, that, you know, let's make our money like this. What we're trying to do is empower the the, the companies and teams and individuals who who know that you know that that it might be a good idea to to change directions um, to do something else because you know we we know that there is a sound business in um, in just you know it's good business logic to to do ethical design and um, and it's not it's not like it's something that just makes you feel better because that's not it's it's a good argument, but it, it probably won't uh, convince the majority of CEOs that you know this will make you sleep better at night. But you know you also have to understand that you don't necessarily have to manipulate people into buying your product because that tends to backlash at you. Um, you have to remember that you know treating people well means that they stay loyal to your brand, so you don't get all this um, brand damage from from. Uh, from manipulating people into buying a product that they don't really need or want. Um, you also have to, you know, be mindful of or respect the fact that a simple UI typically gives a better conversion rate. So when we declutter stuff, when we declutter an interface, it typically results in a better conversion because it's simpler to perform an action. There's not um, all the cognitive load that comes with a, you know, hugely cluttered interface. Um, like we see in, in a lot of, um, you know, poorly designed websites. And then there's obviously all the legislation that is uh, appearing, not just in Europe, but most recently in California as well. And this is also a tendency that we're seeing. Um, so that's also something to, um, to, to look out for. Um, and then, you know, f- focusing your budget on creating good products and good customer service instead of always trying to... Um, to handle, um, you know, backlash on social media is also a pretty compelling argument that uh, that you might want to um, to look into. So it is it is you know a good business logic to um, to do ethical design. It is it isn't the opposite. Would you say it comes down to short term versus long term thinking? Because um, presumably these the the manipulations, the dark patterns, those sorts of things produce uh, they do produce business results in in the short term. You can put something in place and see your conversion rate go up. 
but then perhaps over over the long term, that damage to your brand starts having an effect. Uh, I think that's perfectly true. I think you have to look at the business that you do online as if you had a store on the main street in a medium-sized city where you have to you know, keep your reputation intact. And if you, uh, if you don't treat your customers well, then long term, uh, if you don't treat your customers well, long term you'll run out of business because people they will go to some other store or they'll buy from online. So whatever you do online, you really have to think of that that there's a long term effect, and also there's a kind of a hidden um, there's a hidden uh, cost in doing things that are complex or things that manipulate. And if you if you declutter, as Trina says, there will be a long-term saving. And that's never calculated when you talk about business model. You always talk about how much money you can make. You never talk about the cost of making uh, that amount of money. And especially in business-to-business projects, you see lots of... Uh, and, and I'm at the type of guy I'm involved in these projects. So I've, I've first-hand experience from this. You see salespeople, they have a very complex pricing structure. And that's because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they would meet with all the customers and they will make individual pricing for the customers because that was how you did business before digital. Now they implement that and you'll see that every customer will have his own price or her own price for any item and you synchronize millions of products every night. And if you create a more segmented business strategy, simpler pricing, it's easier for customers to compare your pricing against the competitors. And if customers today are aware or they are sure that they are not being um, that, that they are not paying too much for their products, they that the pricing is not an issue. And the great customer service is the advantage. We mentioned briefly uh, legislation uh, a short while ago. In in Europe, we think of GDPR uh, a lot lately. How does something like um, GDPR as a piece of legislation um, play into ethical design? Well, it, it, it plays into ethical design in the sense that we've added an additional layer of reasons why ethical design is a, is. Uh, an increasing, uh, increasingly good idea, uh, because now we are not just uh, facing, you know, our companies are not just facing potential backlash and, uh, as Martin mentioned, additional costs that are related to, uh, to you know, doing manipulative design in your in your uh, interfaces and in the way that you conduct your business. You also face face huge fines. Uh, that come with um, with GDPR and um, and the the California recently uh, privacy law in California. Um, so that's one thing. I think another thing is also that there is a, a pretty extensive cost related to um, compliance, legisl- uh, legislative compliance, that um, would be reduced if you have you know proper data models, a proper data structure. Uh, instead of just collecting everything you can get your hands on, but if you just go ahead and collect the data that you actually need to run your business, you have a much greater um, success rate in being compliant to the legislation. 
because you know what you have and you only have exactly what you what you need and you know when you're deleting the data and how you're deleting it and how you're storing it instead of just you know putting everything in a pile in your database because you can I don't think there'll be huge fines for the GDPR except for a few big companies that will be um, um, toasted in public to show that the EU is uh, um, is is focusing on this. Well, I think there will be lawsuits that will follow data breaches. So instead of fearing the GDPR police will come after you at any time, if there's a, a, a data leak or a problem in your team, then you may have a problem. But the much bigger bigger problem is that uh, a lot of consumers will actually follow your brand and they will monitor if you do anything wrong. And the damage you can get from cheating on your customers is much higher than whatever you have to pay to the EU. And one simple example is that a lot of consumers, just like myself, will sometimes use a unique email address to sign up for a product or service. And if you later on get an advertisement or some kind of contact based on that unique email address, you know the, the source. So even the GDPR police from the EU is not at your office to check what you're doing. Consumers will be checking on you all the time. And that's, I think that's, I think it's wonderful. I think the GDPR is wonderful for European businesses because as a consumer, I now have a weapon against a business. I can contact them and I can say, I want the data that you have uh, stored on me. I want to see the files. Uh, what do you have? And I think that's uh, that's good protection for your for your identity. Totally agree, and I also think that GDPR is has has really empowered even even if the common consumer doesn't know how to utilize GDPR directly, the fact that GDPR has been so widely discussed and has ha- had so much media attention, um, you know, ever since it. It, before it came into effect, and and even today, um, in the general media, what that does to the general consumer is that it empowers them to talk about and consider and worry about and be, become critical towards privacy, uh, their own privacy. This is something that we've we haven't seen before. The the pretty common um, perception from from you know people who didn't work in digital was. You know, I have nothing to hide, so I don't really care. And I know the products are free and I know that I'm kind of paying with something. But they really have had very little idea as to what that currency was. Today, they they have a much greater uh, knowledge on what data privacy and digital privacy is because GDPR has been so widely discussed in Europe. Uh, so, so I think that is uh, that's something that really has, has had a significant um, has meant a significant change in um, in consumer awareness in Europe. In Europe, because if you are an American, you are used to that you have no protection whatsoever. Exactly, except if you live in California, right? And that's just the you know the first state. I'm pretty sure that that will be a an example, a leading example. I think the funny part of this is actually that when you uh, when you make a new law like the GDPR uh, as an international company. All your software platforms will comply to that uh, regulation because it's too expensive to run two different uh, software setups, one in Europe and one in the rest of the world. So a lot of countries outside of Europe, they're actually benefiting from the GDPR because 
it will be the same software platform and the company don't want to be out of business in Europe. So I guess a lot of ethical design is uh, not just how we design our interfaces, but maybe how we design our systems to handle our customers' data as well and looking at the whole experience from the beginning to the end of doing the right thing for the customer. Yeah, and data storage is uh, extremely important because you have to prove that uh, uh, you you keep my data in a safe place and let's say that I delete my app, I delete my account. Can you then verify that you actually deleted my data from all the backups? That's extremely complicated. So you have to put that into place and you also have to test for it. There's there's something wrong in the perception that, you know, uh, I, I get a job uh, in a software team and then I can kind of change everything and make everything ethical because a single person cannot do anything in this area. It needs to be a team effort. And even you have the best intentions of what you do, it also matters that you can actually test and verify that it's done right. And you will see in a software team that uh, if you're a developer and you write code, you will have to make a lot of decisions on your own because you have a business team uh, behind you. They set up all the requirements. They have never time to meet with you. They will never answer your questions and they don't understand your language. So as a programmer, you need to make a lot of decisions on your own. And for that reason, the importance of the test team is just, it's so vital that they do their job and testing if data are stored in the right place on uh, using the right methods is just complicated. So if I am a, a programmer or a designer within an organization, and in my view, the organization isn't taking the most ethical approach, is there anything I can do to help to correct that, to help start changing course? Is there is there something that a, a designer can do, or is it a case of get a new job? Well, I, I think sometimes it's a matter of getting a new job, but I, when I'm involved in a project, I always try to change things for the better. And, and one good way of doing so is to write up a small IT governance model for the project that you do, because usually we can all agree on the principles. So after we've done that, we also have to follow the guidelines that we've been setting up. So let's say that one of the guidelines is privacy first. The the privacy setting should by default be as private as possible for any user then if that's your governance principle, then no matter what you do, you have to check, do we follow that principle? And small steps, that's also great. You don't have to change everything from day one, and you can't do that. But you can make a small change every week, and then in a year or two, it makes a big difference. So do you think it's best just to work guerrilla style and put some sort of ethical influence on the the parts of the product that you actually touch. Is there any mileage to be gained in trying to make a business case or trying to persuade the people at the, at the top of the organization that this is a change they should make? Or do you think it's just small changes from, from below to try and help where you can? It, it all depends on your job title and your responsibility because if you're a programmer, you can do a lot of invisible stuff that's done right and no one will ever find out how good you are but you can still do it and if you work in a business unit if you work in communication or in sales you may be worried about the brand value 
the reputation, the long-term effects. So it can also be meeting with some of the others in other roles and see how you can influence them. Sometimes it's also a matter of um, of if if you are in that again, I agree with Martin. It's, it depends on your job title, how much how much reach you you basically have. But a good um, a good way of of sparking change or starting uh, this uh, ethical transformation that we call it uh, is to to pick a project that is kind of isolated where you can also so so a project that you have responsibility of that you can uh, you know make your own and make the the changes that you um, the ethical changes that you find uh, important uh, because what happens is you also have a a piece of uh, or a project that you can now measure on so that is uh, you know the first step to um, to pr- to proving the business case is to be able to measure um, that it actually had a positive impact so that's that's a that's a very specific way to to get started on this so if i'm starting out a new project or uh, uh, starting at a, a new organization or even maybe working on a, a side project that I would like to become something bigger. Is there a good approach that I can take? Are there any sort of frameworks that I could work within to help me make good ethical design choices? Yes, there are plenty of, uh, of, of frameworks. Um, one is to um, to be mindful of um, the consequences that you have. So, so there are you know, some questions that you could that you could ask uh, for any decision that you're making to um, to make sure that um, you know that it it, it complies with uh, certain ethical principles. Um, one is, you know, what are the long term and short term consequences of the decision you're you're about to make? Is it something that has any negative impact, um, either long or short term, um, to the people that you're designing a product for, or to you know the team that's dealing with? Um, because consequences doesn't just have to do with uh, and and uses it also has to do with the uh, with the business. If you're making a decision that potentially hurts the the, the brand of the company, um, then you you know that's a pretty serious consequence as well. Um, I think a, a good asset test if you're doing a product or doing a feature is to ask yourself whether you would want one of your loved ones to be using this feature, because if the answer is a clear no. Then that's an indicator that what you're deci- what you're making might not, you know, be super clear cut. Might need to be revisited to um, to understand why why it is that you would you you know you'd want the business customers to use this, but you wouldn't want your sister or mother or you know uh, spouse to be using the same feature. And then you have to ask yourself why is that. I would like to quote from the book because we uh, have a case story with Link's cars and it's uh, car leasing. And uh, Link Valentine, she's, she's just uh, so different from the rest of her business. And she describes, and uh, this is a quote from the book, I would describe my ethic as, ethics as honesty wrapped in a boxing glove. <laughs> and if if you just set up a very straightforward principle for whatever you do, it's easy to follow. Very true. Ling is Ling is exceptional. She, uh, as you said, Martin, she she is in an industry that is notoriously known for uh, not 
you know, doing any anything ethical or not doing a lot of things with an ethical mindset. But she will, I actually read through her entire privacy policy, which is normally a really, really dull thing to do. But I had the time of my life while doing so. She has something like, I, yeah, I, I, I made Martin read it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, that's funny that's funny she had something like you know i i wish i could sell all this um you know i i I know i could make a ton of money selling the data of my customers uh which is you know a compelling thought but i won't i will and she says something like i will um uh put it in a can of worms and you know uh, uh, dig it to the ground and sit on it uh before i do so so she's, she knows that she's sitting on a pot of gold and she also knows that she would never, ever sell it. And that she's very straightforward in, in that. And she, she has to, I mean, I, I encourage you, I, I normally never encourage anyone to, you know, to read, to, to um, go through the agony of reading a privacy statement because they're usually so boring. But Link's Cars is the exception. It's a great Sunday read. Go for it. <laughs> The um the book has uh, lots of case studies throughout it. Are there any that stand out in your mind that um, would be interesting to highlight? I think it's it's actually more important that um, the book is also trying to provide a method for what to do, and it's based on the case stories. It's based on all the personal experiences we've had over the past twenty five years in the software business, and I think when you read the case stories, they are uh, unique in different ways. And they all add to that uh, general picture of what to do in the future. And in, at the end of the book, we have four different uh, uh, blueprints for how to do um, a website, e-commerce solution, uh, program an app, uh, create the technology for Internet of Things. And that's actually how you get started. So after reading the case stories and the other content in the book, what is really important is that you uh, create a change. And we've been talking for many years about digital transformation, but the next level is actually the ethical transformation where you take all the ethical principles for good software design and you build that into the process. And you have to understand that ethical design is not like you have a birthday cake and it's made out of uh, airplanes and pineapple and then you have um, a, a nice frosting on top of that uh, cake. It will not be a good treat anyways, but it's something that you, it, ethical design is actually a part of the entire design process. And that's what we try to accomplish with the blueprints at the end of the book. Yeah, I think I, I, I honestly I honestly believe that, that that's what, what will make this book um, something that will empower people to to create that change and to start. Because, of course, we raise the, the different concerns that are pretty commonly known, but we, we also know, and we, well, we, yeah, we also know that the readers of this book already know about the problems, right? It's, it's, it's all over the place. What we're trying to do is to give people some tools to, to get started on doing change and doing stuff differently. Um, and the the blueprints is is one um, one approach. We were we also included um, an ethical scorecard in the book, which basically um, is a way you can you you can utilize it in different ways. You can utilize utilize it to to get an overall picture of whether of of um, 
of the ethical, um, where on the ethical scale your company is or your product is. But you can also actually use it to to uh, you can you can take out different um, statements in different areas of the scorecard and use it as your KPI to measure on ethical design. And that's something that is still um, still not being talked a lot about, you know, how do we actually measure on, on, on these types of things, but it's totally possible to do so. And that's, it's something that we've spent significant time on, on addressing as well, because we, we know that we need to, the people need to be able to make the business case. They can't just go to their CEO and say, this will make you sleep better at night. I have an example of uh, a customer journey that will score really bad on ethical design. And this is a real example. Uh, uh, it's uh, Serge Engelman on Twitter. He writes, uh, in order to verify my identity over the phone, Macy's wanted to send me a one-time password via SMS. They then asked me to give them a number to send that one-time password to. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just a completely broken customer journey and nobody has, no one has tested it. And these examples, they are all over the internet. When you start looking for them, you'll find lots of broken customer journeys. And that's why the evaluation method using that ethical scorecard is so important because it takes like half an hour to to go through the scorecard and then you'll know where to improve. That's something that really pleasantly surprised me with the book because I, I think I was expecting the book to be to explain the case for ethical design to motivate me to make changes. What I was then pleasantly surprised with was the things like the scorecard to help me actually evaluate a design and then the very practical um, blueprints, as you say, in the sort of last third of the book that actually describe how I would practically go about creating more ethical designs. So that was, uh, I thought that was very refreshing and a, a really nice approach to, to a book of this nature. Thank you. We also discussed uh, being angry, if that would be a good idea. You know, you can always write a book about ethical design and then blame everyone for doing it wrong. But we <laughs> thought that would be uh, as helpful yeah, I think I think we we decided very early on that we will leave it to others to be angry, <laughs> and then we will uh, we'll focus on um, up to, uh, being optimistic. The the whole book has been you know written with an optimistic mindset, meaning that you know if you're not optimistic that you can actually do this, then it's really hard to uh, convince others to uh, you know to join you. <laughs> So, so we're aiming for optimistic. That's great. Martin has touched upon it, the fact that, you know, you can't really, you, it's very hard to make ethical transformation on your own. And sometimes, you know, the, the answer to, you know, do I try to, do I fight for it in this company or do I find another job? That sometimes the, the answer is finding another job. Um, it's actually interesting that, the, and, and this also speaks towards why it's a, you know, why it's might be a good idea to, um, to actually start doing this, I recently read there is an estimated 66% of millennials who actually want to start their own business because they're so fed up with these big corporations where they can't have any impact. So if you're opening up your processes and your work structures to you know, people actually getting to have a say and actually uh, allow them to make changes because you know millennials are also a lot more value-driven than than the older generations. 
um, then you know you may have a better chance at retaining talent, which is actually also one of the cases that we have in the book. We we try to really cover very broadly into in the sense that we we know that ethical design is not just about product development. It's not just about the website or the app. It's not uh, just about the business model. It's not just about um, data handling or teams or work processes. It it really is about it all. And we've um, we've really tried to include all of that so that it it becomes apparent that this is not just about products. If we go back to the uh, guerrilla model, talk about you make small changes, you do that on your own, and later on you will have to prove to your team and your to your boss that uh, you're actually doing something good. First of all, the ethical scorecard is a really easy method of establishing a baseline, and then whatever you improve later on, you can actually. Uh, show that uh, things they are changing for the better and that business case that you have to create is uh, in my experience uh, always that you end up doing things in a better way and it will not cost you more money which is one of the best business cases that you can ever present to your organization so sometimes it's a good idea to work in the hidden for like two three months probably in a small team create the changes implement them show the better results, and then go to your boss and say, it would be a good idea to establish this as the way we work in the future because it's actually, it's not costing us any money, but it's just giving us better results. And the wonderful thing about online is that as a consumer, the competition is always just one click away. So as a consumer, you can move in any direction at any time if you want to. And business managers, they should be aware that they are in a market where there's no loyalty in the market. If you don't behave well or if you're too expensive, the loyalty is gone in a second. So as a business, you really have to be serious about this. The Ethical Design Handbook is full of loads of really good examples, uh, case studies and practical information to get started. And it's available now from Smashing at smashingmagazine.com slash books. So I've been learning all about ethical design what have you been learning about lately? So I've actually been researching a lot on uh, the financial impacts on uh, diversity or lack of diversity. However, you want to. Well, most of, most of the case studies are still, you know, due to lack of diversity. But that's something that I've become increasingly um, interested in uh, to understand how uh, diversity can actually, you know, make for for better businesses and better products. Um, I'm also diving into um, some new and alternative approaches to design thinking and some activities and things that you can do there. So that's uh, that's what I've been up to since uh, the writing work of the, the ethical design handwork stopped. And for me, currently, I work with the ethical design in uh, Internet of Things, which is actually quite interesting because if you monitor what's going on in a factory and you collect a lot of data you can uh, um, do lots of mistakes but you can also do a lot of things right if you have the right strategy and then i'm trying to improve how i can throw a frisbee longer with my sidearm shot <laughs> i love it <laughs> If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Trina or Martin, you can find Trina on the web at trinafalb.com and Martin at martinmichael.io. Thank you for joining us today, both. Do you have any parting words? 
Buy the book. <laughs> I agree with her. <laughs> this is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at smashingmag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Oh,